be with you. A real privilege to be able to spend some time together in God's Word. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and uh, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, the past few weeks, uh, we've been taking a little time off of our study of the Gospel of Luke to uh, talk church. And uh, specifically, what kind of church does God want us to be? And we've looked at a couple different passages. We've been going here and there a bit. We looked at a few passages in Titus and then uh, in Romans. But today, Ephesians. If we're going to talk church, I think it makes sense for us to look at Ephesians because Ephesians is basically uh, Paul's book on the church. So if you would uh, say, is there one book of the Bible that kind of summarizes what the Bible teaches about the church, I think we would pretty much say that's what's going on in uh, Ephesians. And I hope one day uh, that we get to look at the whole book, actually, uh, verse by verse, because it's uh, so important and it's all connected. But we're going to fast forward a little today, specifically to look at Ephesians chapter uh, 4, uh, verses 7 through 16. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But, you know, if uh, we ever do get a chance to look at the whole book, uh, one thing we're going to see for sure is that Paul has got a big vision for the church. So a lot of people nowadays I know are not that excited about the church, don't think much about the church. Unbelievers for sure aren't all that impressed. And even we as believers sometimes get a little bit discouraged and distracted and don't really think much of the church. It, it doesn't always seem uh, that significant and it doesn't always seem that important. Politics sometimes seems more important to us or even uh, sports sometimes feels more important. And so we give ourselves to, to this or that and we don't always think much of the church. But Paul, Paul thinks much of the church. And in chapters one through three of Ephesians, he spends a lot of time showing why the church is so important. Uh, this is the part of the book, Ephesians 1 to 3, that you might say is a lot of, of doctrine. So there aren't many commands. In fact, I think there's only one command, and that is the command to remember. And the rest, it's all straight teaching about God and what God has done and what God is doing in the church. And Paul shows that the church is a key part of this great, big, massive plan that God made from before the beginning of the world to put his glory on display to cosmic, supernatural beings through reversing the curse and defeating his enemies through his son Jesus and his, his work. So it's huge when you think of the church. You can't just think of it as uh, maybe a nice place to meet friends or a, a, a place to do good to the community or to sing some nice songs with other people. You know, you like to go sing with a group or, or something or, or even a place for my children to learn to do good. No, it's, it's part of something bigger, much bigger, the, the church that God is doing. And Paul is doing a lot of work in these opening chapters, chapters 1 to 3, to show you that the church is not just another ordinary institution, but is created by God and brought 
into being through this awesome work of resurrection power to accomplish something of eternal significance and even cosmic importance. Think the fundamental problems of the, the universe when you think church. Think about a plan that goes from before the beginning of the world to after the end of the world when you think church. Think not just what you see around here, but angelic rulers and authorities when you think church. That's chapters one to three, what the church is, what it's doing. It's doctrine, 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 teaching, teaching, teaching. And then chapters four to six are the implications. What difference does that make? If this is true, then what? In other words, you know how lately we've been talking about gospel culture. That's our title for this little series, gospel culture. What kind of culture does the gospel produce here at the church? And really, you might say, this would basically be Paul's answer, chapters 4 to 6. And again, it's huge. Paul does not think small. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, is the overview. He says, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And that phrase, prisoner for the Lord, Paul's coming off of chapter three, where he said that he was literally a prisoner for what God was doing in the church. So how big is the church? Paul's saying, look at me. This is something that I'm gladly giving my life for. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. So look at me, a prisoner for the Lord, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you now. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, again, you're going to church, you know, and you're thinking, okay, what's the big deal? This is, this is no big deal. This is just another group that is gathered here in Orange County. And Paul is like, no, no, let's like go back to the blackboard. You're missing it. It is actually a calling. I mean, do you understand what the church is? It is a calling from God where you are made part of his redemptive plan. And because that makes you such a significant part of what God is doing in this world right now, Paul says you need to walk in a manner worthy of it. That's why your relationship to the church is important. It's a calling. And you see how Paul repeats that for emphasis. The calling to which you have been called. In other words, this is who you are if you are a Christian. God didn't save you to live the Christian life by yourself. But to be part of this bigger thing that he's doing, we call church. And this is what it means to be the church, Ephesians 1 to 3. So now be the church, Ephesians 4 to 6. I've shown you that God's called you to be part of this great, big, massive plan, Paul's saying. Now go and live as a church in light of that. Unfortunately, if you look down, Paul gets specific about what he means by that. Overview, verse 1. Specific explanation, verse 2 and 3, because we might go in all kinds of different directions when we think about what it means to live in a way that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. I mean, we're Americans. We don't plan. 
We just do. Do something huge. Build a building. I don't know. We think front page news when we think of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But if you look, Paul says no. What it means is a new way of doing relationships. That is living in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, which I love because we've got all these things that come into our mind when we think about what it means to be a great church or to live in a way that's matching up with what God is doing through the church. And I'm not sure that the things that come into our minds are always the exact same as the things that come into Paul's because from a certain perspective, you look at what Paul says and it seems kind of ordinary, like be humble towards other believers. Be gentle, be patient, put up with others because you love them, work hard at maintaining unity. As a missionary, you know, when I was a missionary, I had to write these support letters talking about what I was doing, what we were doing on the mission field. And I don't know, these aren't the things you normally see in support letters, like I worked hard this month at a relationship with someone else in the church, being humble towards them and gentle, and putting up with ways they offended me because I loved them and I knew Jesus loved them. Because that doesn't seem all that exciting to a lot of people. And yet, of course, it's actually huge. First of all, because it's so hard and rare. You know, we look at the world right now. What do you think is the rarest thing in the world? These kinds of loving relationships have got to be up there on the list. You read history books of people doing all kinds of amazing things. Alexander the Great, you know, taking over the world by the time he's like 30 or whatever, and you're so impressed. But none of those leaders, not, no one has been able to create a society where people actually loved each other the way that Paul's talking about here. And the reason this is important in the church, why Paul brings it up, is not simply because it would be nice this is important because this is what Jesus died to accomplish. And again, it's connected to doctrine. If you look at verses 4 to 6, this is supposed to be the part of the letter where there are a lot of commands. But Paul goes back to what God's done again right after he gets started. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that's, again, you're the church. That's literally what I told you in Ephesians 1 to 3. So be the church, and this is what it means. God's united you through Jesus, so what you need to do, you need to be the kind of people who pursue unity. And yet again, now we're finally getting to verses 7 through 16, which was the part we were going to look at, because the question is, how? How? If you think about a Cornerstone Bible Church, you think about us, how do, we, how do we do that? How do we fulfill that vision? If Paul said, live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and here's the vision, build a tower, I think we would all have some plans. That, that's doable. We know how to do that. But be people who are completely humble and gentle and patient 
and bear with one another and are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, that almost seems overwhelming. Like, how do we do that? Verses 7 to 16 is Paul's basic answer. And a big picture, I want you to see that his answer has a lot to do with you personally. If you're a believer, you are important to the work of the local church. Maybe uh, you remember I've been writing down some statements, thinking about the gospel and the church and what should be so obviously true of us and how this church works And one was, we know we're needy, a needy church. And two was, we believe God can change people, so we want to be a hopeful church. And three was, we're confident God is for for us because of Jesus, and that gives us stability, so we can be a, a stable, confident church. And here, four is, we believe each member has been gifted by God and should feel a responsibility to use their gifts in the context of the church so we can be what God's calling us to be, a gifted church. The way Paul puts it, verse 7, but grace. And by grace, he's not talking about saving grace, but instead about spiritual gifts, which are these abilities that you have been given through the Spirit's enabling to help other believers grow. I read somewhere, someone who wrote, Paul could have easily written here, to each of us, ministry has been given. Back in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul looks at his own life and says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And that's the language he's using here, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. Not just Paul, but grace was given to each one of us. And you hear that, each one of us. Paul's saying, after saving you by grace and joining you to the church, God shows you more grace by giving you abilities that you are supposed to use to share an aspect of his grace with others. In uh, verses 4 to 6, Paul's been talking about how we are one. There is one body, he says. But even though we're one body, God never intended that just a few people be the whole body. Instead, we're all parts of that body, and so... There's not one part of the body that's able to do the whole work of the body by itself. In fact, you see a body where just one part is working, and I'm not even a doctor. I, I know this. Like, you see a, a body where only one part is working, like a, just the finger is the only thing that moves. That body is obviously going to be ineffective. And so is the church, because God's plan is that we serve as different parts of the body, fulfilling our role in making the body work the way it should. And that's why grace was given to each one of us, not to one of us, but to each one of us. And if that's God's plan, we're only going to be the church God wants us to be as we each feel a responsibility to use the grace that he's given us to serve others. And that's kind of the point of this whole sermon, actually, because, and I'm glad it's not this way here, but I've been to churches where it almost feels like the church exists so the pastor can use his gift. And I'm not downplaying pastors, and we're going to see the role they play even in this passage, and it's important. But their role has to do a lot with actually enabling you to use your gifts in the local church. And this is probably just more of an encouragement today because I know you know this, but still it's 
tempting sometimes to think of the church as just a place you go and sit and learn and go home, and that's kind of it. Even good churches can get a little like that over the years, and that's not all there is to us being a biblical church. We all need to feel our responsibility to be engaged, and I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, where Paul gives several reasons why using your gifts, you ministering in the local church is so important. And the first reason is because of who gave you this gift, the way Paul puts it. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And it's important that before we talk about what you're supposed to do for Christ in the church, we stop and think about what Christ has already done in serving you. Because you know, ultimately, this is about him. We're always tempted to make everything so me-centered. And so we might even do that with gifts, try to start with ourselves. But we have to start with Jesus. And you're going to see, it's like Paul here in this passage, he's going back to this great redemptive plan of God and saying, okay, let's see how this works. He's made you one through Jesus. I told you that in chapter 2. So you need to be one. That's what I'm telling you now. How? Let's go back to Jesus. Jesus, Paul's saying, he didn't only die to save you. He went further and he gave each one of you a gift. We each have something from Jesus that he gave us that others in the church need. So he not only forgave us of all of our sin, but he also equipped us with specific abilities through which we can now serve the church and do things that can literally make an eternal impact, which part is part of why Paul, of course, describes this as grace. He says, but to each one, grace was given. The gift is grace. It's God's undeserved kindness to have a gift to use. For one thing, because it's not like ultimately God needs us. So it's not like I'm coming here and saying, hey, serve the church, do stuff. This has got to be our culture. We need to, to work hard. We need to get all this done because, you know, Jesus is up in heaven and he's in trouble. <laughs> he doesn't need us and he doesn't need me to build the church. He can get the church done without us. It's not like he's looking down and, and saying, oh, here's a person. I don't know how to help them. And then he sees you and he's like, oh. Please help me. You're the, you're the one. You're the only one. No, Jesus could have helped that person all by himself if he wanted to. And he could have just gone ahead and given that person everything he needs to live out the Christian life without you or me. But he didn't. That's the thing. We, we need each other. He stooped down and he measured out our, our gifts and he spread out the grace we need to live the Christian life amongst all of us, which I think is so kind because while I may not be the most important person in the world and 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 I might feel like hey my life you know is at a, a dead end if I'm a Christian I have a purpose because Jesus has given me the Holy Spirit and he's given me a supernatural gift and this gift is truly needed in the church at this time I have a role to play and so do you you have a role to play that's grace we all do as believers we all have as someone has explained, supernatural abilities that are energized by the Holy Spirit to enable us to make a spiritual impact in the body of Christ for the good of others. Wow. You know, to, to quote Paul in another place, just because that is so big 
you probably need some proof. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We each have been graced a gift. And there's a sense in which each of the gifts we've been given are unique as well. In Ephesians here, the picture is of Jesus measuring these gifts out. John MacArthur, he puts it like this. He says, as we look at the Bible, there are these categories of gifts, service, teaching, giving, whatever. And, and it's like they're colors on a palette. And it's like Jesus dips his brush and he paints you with a mix of the colors available on the palette to make this beautiful painting of the church. Or another illustration you might use is a fingerprint. Each one of us has a different fingerprint. And just as God has marked out and identified us uniquely by our fingerprints, he's done the same with our spiritual giftedness, which means there's a sense in which this is personal. And so we can't just hide away and think, you know what, it doesn't matter if I'm serving or involved because I don't have anything to give. That other person is so much better than me anyway. And we feel like we're being so humble Oh, I'm not that important. I'm not that good. Because, yeah, we all know that already. <laughs> None of us are that important. You're not. I'm not. It doesn't all hang on you, fortunately. But part of God's plan, here we see, is to give each one of us grace, and Jesus has actually measured it out. So not to use it is kind of like putting Jesus down because, again, it's not really about you. So you're not able to do what you're able to do in the church because you are somehow such an amazing person and got such a great education or whatever, you are able to do what you can do in the church because the king of the church came to you and said, here, I want to give you this so you can use it for others. Which I think is a, a pretty powerful motivation for stepping up and getting involved in the life of the church. One, who gave me this gift? This is from Jesus. Two, we can talk about how he gave us this gift. And this is where this particular passage really starts popping in terms of unique insights into spiritual gifts. And we're going to look at this for two weeks, so we won't get it all today. But that's because it's a little deep. So watch this. Verse 8, Paul writes, Therefore it says, which means he's quoting scripture here, the Old Testament. And specifically he's quoting a psalm, Psalm 68. Not exactly, exactly, because Paul's inspired, and I, I think he's actually working like a preacher as he explains this text. More than just quoting it word for word, he's kind of exegeting it and uh, applying it and saying, okay, you have a gift from Jesus. How did you get this gift? Let me take you back to the Old Testament to explain, which is amazing. You have this gift. And it's part of something really big because it's not just about you and your gift or even just you and Jesus giving you this gift. Paul's saying this is all connected to this great big plan God's working on. So even when I talk to you about your spiritual gift now, I can go back to Psalm, Psalm 68, to explain it. Because this is part of something so big. It's part of this great plan that God's been working on from the beginning of, of the universe. Psalm 68, it says, Paul writes, when he ascended on high, 
he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And, you know, really, if we were going to do this section on Ephesians 4 justice, what we would need to do is go back and look at all of Psalm 68. But that's part of why you have devotions, right? So when you read the writer quoting an Old Testament passage, to understand, you kind of have to go back and read the whole passage. And this is part of what makes preaching the Bible so challenging, (laughs) because it's like, hey, I want to preach Ephesians 4. How am I going to do that without preaching all of Ephesians? And it gets even harder because Paul's quoting so much. So it's like, how am I going to preach Ephesians without preaching Psalm 68? And I don't know, probably Psalm 68's quoting as well. So how am I going to preach Psalm 68 without preaching the whole Old Testament? It's all connected. But basically, Paul is saying the giving of spiritual gifts to the church was something that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And of course, when we think prophecy in the Old Testament, we usually... Think of a prophet standing up and speaking about something in the future, like a prediction or something. But that's not the only kind of prophecy in the Old Testament. Sometimes what God does is he takes real historical events and he uses those events to prefigure something that was going to come later. And I think that's what's happening in Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a psalm of David. And David is talking about how God defeated his enemies. And if you read the psalm, you'll see it's a little hard to know which enemies he's talking about because sometimes it seems like it's future, sometimes it seems like it's past, but ultimately I think it's end times. He's giving us a picture to help us understand what God is doing through Jesus, and it's a picture of how a king, after he won a battle, he would come into the city, and he would normally have like this long line of people who were following him. Uh, Sometimes they would be people he captured Sometimes it would be uh, the city itself, people who were celebrating. And he would ascend to the highest hill with all these people who had come with him and with all these spoils of war that he had taken as well. And at that moment, a good king might receive gifts as people came to bring him honor, which is actually how the psalm puts it. And yet even as he received those gifts, he would be generous and distribute those gifts among his people. And Paul's saying, you have to understand, that's what happened with Jesus. And so you want to understand why it's important you use your gift. Jesus went to war, and he won. Through his death and resurrection, everything as a Christian goes back to the indicative. It goes back to what God has done through Jesus. Even you serving in the church, if you're going to understand, using your gifts, you have to go back to what God did through Jesus. Jesus It's part of God's plan to reverse the curse, the key part, and the cross, what happened at the cross, Jesus went to war and he won. And he achieved this great victory over his enemies. And after that victory, he ascended into heaven, leading a host of captives, Paul says. And I don't know, I'm not sure, maybe this is describing the way Jesus triumphed over demonic forces Or the opposite, it could be a picturesque way of describing Jesus presenting the people he had freed to his father. But again, either way, the point is that part of the whole goal, and this is something even Jesus said as to why he had to ascend, why he ascended like that, was so that he could send the spirit to gift the church. Which, of course, we know he did. And this is Paul's point as we think about spiritual gifts, even why we call them gifts. Why do we call them gifts? Not just because it's a talent, 
It's because it's this picture of a king who gives the spoils of war to his people. And so he wants us to picture this great king in, in his moment of great triumph, actually thinking about sharing his victory with his people. And so when you think about why should I be involved in the church, it's hard. I don't feel important. It's not about you. You have to look at this big picture. God has done something incredible through Jesus. Read Ephesians 2 if you want the whole commentary. But one of the results of him doing that was him gifting you, giving these gifts to you. And so you using your gifts is part of you expressing your faith that Jesus really did win. We're like a testimony to the world that Jesus triumphed at the cross. Every time we use our gifts in the context of the local church, we're pointing people back. Jesus won. He defeated the enemy. He is king. And in case we're confused, Paul goes on to explain, and, and, and that's verses 9 and 10. And Paul, you know, his explanation is a little bit confusing as well. But I'll try to give you what I think is the idea. He says in verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. So I think what Paul's doing here is clarifying. It's like Paul saying, okay, you know, I quoted that verse. But I don't want you to miss the significance. Because obviously the reason we have these spiritual gifts is because Jesus ascended into heaven and gave them to us. But you have to slow down now, Paul's saying, and think about that. Because if it says he ascended to give these gifts to us, it also means that he descended first. He came down, he says, into the lower regions. And that's a little bit tricky. I don't know if you know the history of, uh, of this particular verse because there are different ideas in terms of what Paul means. But I think he's simply saying that he descended into the lower regions, namely the earth. The lower regions are the earth. Uh, we, we've never had another human who existed, who had an existence before he came to earth. Uh, so you can see how it would be a little challenging for Paul to describe. And so I think Paul's just getting specific. He came to the lower regions, and by lower regions, I literally mean the earth. I know some people think it's talking about Jesus descending into hell, but I don't really think there's much reason for thinking that, especially given that he's quoting Psalm 68 and even the, the grammar of this passage. I think he's just talking about the earth and describing it this way because obviously the earth is much, much lower than where he's sitting and ruling right now. And I think the point is to get us thinking about what Jesus went through to give us these spiritual gifts that we now enjoy. It's a little like he's saying, if you want to know why you should be using your gifts within the church, you have to think about the cost. It's Jesus who's given you this gift. And in order to give you this gift, he had to make himself nothing and take on the form of a servant himself. In other words, he had to come down. Like I think we can imagine if someone gave us a gift that cost him his life. Imagine you had that sitting on your shelf at your home, a gift that cost, literally cost someone their life. We'd have to be pretty hard-hearted to take that gift for granted. And yet that's not even a small comparison of what it cost Jesus that we might have the spirit. And so if you're thinking it's no big deal if I just sort of live my life off by myself and do my thing, you better think again because Jesus came down. <laughs> he came down. And part of 
the purpose of him coming down was to give you these gifts so that you could use them in the local church as a testimony to his triumph. And you know, in case that's not grabbing hold of you the way it should, Paul goes on and reminds us of who this Jesus is in verse 10. He says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Like in case you write Jesus off where you look at him dying on the cross and think, I guess it's not so serious if I don't take him seriously and his plan seriously. Paul says, no, this one who descended in order to give you these gifts is also the very one who ascended. In other words, he's the one whom God the Father has exalted to the position of highest authority anywhere in the universe. Like Paul says back in Ephesians verse 120, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And I, I guess I'm just saying that I think we have to keep these things in mind as we think about our relationship to the, to the church, your relationship to the local church, because it's not like we're just here doing our thing. Jesus has given us gifts, and he's given us these gifts at great cost to himself, and we've got to take that seriously, because when we talk about Jesus, we are talking about the one who is exalted above everyone else right now, presently. He is king of the universe. Third, third, and I'm just trying to motivate here. Because we might think we can't be this kind of church he's talking about, the Bible's talking about. But yes, we can pursue being this kind of church. We've been gifted for this. I mean, let's think third about why he gave us these gifts. In verses 11 and 12, who, how, why? He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so here, Paul gets specific, and he's, he's talked about God giving each one of us a gift, and he's kind of been speaking in general. But here, he brings up an example of some of the gifts that he's given to the church, and these gifts are actually persons. And uh, some of these gifts are one-time gifts, apostles and prophets, and others of these gifts are ongoing, uh, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, especially here, shepherds and teachers. And if you want to understand how all that works, you can read Ephesians 2, because he explains, but Rather than get lost in the debate as to whether or not we have apostles and prophets today, I want you to see why Paul's given these gifts to the church. He says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Because Paul's trying to help us understand how the church becomes what it's supposed to be. And he's saying God's given over the years all these individuals to the church with gifts of the word. And the reason he's given them these gifts is not so they could just gather a group around them who just sit and listen, but instead so that they could equip those believers for the work of the ministry. And here we're getting to it. Equip for the work of the ministry, the work of the ministry, because who's doing the ministry? You look everywhere in Paul, his emphasis is on the members of the church doing the work of the ministry, which is different than how we sometimes think, because I, I found at least that there are some people who think of the way the church works almost like a taxi. You know, where you get in and, and pay your money and you sit there 
and the leaders are supposed to drive you where you're supposed to go. And there are others who think of it like a, a soccer game where certain people in the church are the players and the rest are the audience, where the, the biblical model really, as we've been saying, is not a soccer game or a taxi. It's the body. The church is the body. And for the church, the body, to function properly, every single part of the body has to be willing to go to work, which is why God gives us teachers to help us know what to do and how to do it. That's how Paul says the body gets built up. As the men God's given to the church teach the word of God, the people in that church are equipped to serve, and they start using their gifts and ministering to others, and the result is that the church becomes what it's supposed to be, which, again, is why this is so vital, that if you're a Christian and part of this church, that you feel a responsibility to be engaged, because it's not like in the taxi, where if someone's standing there and he decides not to get in the taxi, the taxi obviously doesn't just break apart, but because the taxi doesn't need him. And it's not like a soccer game where if you're uh, a fan and you're really tired and you go to the game and you fall asleep and your team loses, it's not like the coach comes up afterwards and like, how could you fall asleep up there in the, the stands? We would have won if you hadn't fallen asleep. It's like a body. If one part of my body doesn't function, it has an impact. And we have to be careful how we say this, of course, because from a certain perspective, uh, none of us matter. I mean, God doesn't need us, and yet at the same time, he does use us. As a concept, I think it's a little hard to see both, but more specifically, we can get how this works. It's kind of like Martin Luther. Was he necessary? No, I suppose not really, but yes, you take him out of church history as it stands, and it would be significantly different, and we may not be Martin Luther, of course, but we're part of the body, and as part of the body, us Doing or not doing what God's gifted us to do does make an impact. It's kind of like, I would guess, uh, you've all had the experience where one part of your body, you'll get, if you haven't had it yet, you'll definitely get this more when you get older, <laughs> where one part of your body isn't working the way uh, it should. And that part of the body might not even seem that important to you until it stops working. Like you might hear of somebody who can't sweat. Most of the time when you sweat, you're like, ah, oh, this is kind of gross. I smell but imagine if that part of your body stopped working. Obviously, sweat cools you down, and so if you're not able to sweat, uh, possible you'll die. And, and so you're not looking at your pores or whatever enables you to sweat and saying, you know what, I'm so thankful for you every day. But if they're not working, you're in trouble. And that's kind of the way it is with the church. We, we've got this thing sometimes, and I think it's more Catholic, honestly, where we put leaders and pastors in such high positions. And it's Good to respect your leaders, of course. Don't dismiss them. But sometimes we put pastors and leaders in such a high position that we think they're the only ones who can minister to others. The rest of us, we kind of, you know, stack chairs or something. In Africa, this was really pronounced. But maybe it's here a little as well. I don't know. I think we probably have an expert culture a little in America. And so it might be that we think there are experts and non-experts. And so we've got this person we know who needs to wit somebody to witness to them. And even though we're with them all the time and we've got like a million opportunities to talk to them, we don't feel like we need to say anything. We just need to somehow get an apologist or like a YouTube apologist to, uh, to say something to them. Or it might be that one of our friends is stuck in sin. And so we can like we clearly see them in sin. We know it's sin and they need help. 
but we don't do that much and we don't even feel that badly that we're not doing much because we don't even really think of it as our responsibility. I mean, I'm not the pastor or a care group leader. When the reality is those are not just the kinds of things that only pastors or care group leaders should be doing. Those are exactly the kinds of things that pastors and leaders are there to help us all learn to be doing. Do you realize equipping people for the work of the ministry would not be so hard if it was simply the work of the ministry was only like administrative, which is hard actually, but uh, or like uh, stacking chairs or doing other things. It's, that kind of equipping could probably take place in like, you know, 20 minutes or something. Put the chair there. Okay, let's go. Equipping for the work of the ministry, we're going to see the, the ministry is, is all these interpersonal, relational kinds of things. And that's part of why you've been supernaturally gifted and have the Spirit of God in you. And that's why you have teachers in order to help you learn to do all that. Four, this is, this is number four. We've seen who gives us these gifts, the costs of the gifts, the purpose of the gifts, and now I want you to see the impact these gifts can make when we're all functioning the way we should. Verse 13 and following, and we'll look at this more next week, but Paul's going to give us a couple pictures, and they're going to come fast and furious. First, he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So as we use our gifts and teachers equip us to use our gifts, we grow more and more united in the faith, which, of course, refers to the truth we believe about Jesus. And so you see here how it says the faith, meaning doctrine. And again, it's like we're coming full circle because we already are one in that faith. That's what he said back in verses 4 to 6. That's what's real. But it's kind of like we're saved and, and miraculously united by God like that, and yet we all come to the church and we don't know that much at first. And because we're coming out of the world, we got all kinds of funny ideas. Those funny ideas impact us, and we're still operating every day on the basis of a lot of error. And so we're going this way, and we're going that way, and our relationships suffer. But what's supposed to happen in the church as pastors and teachers equip us to serve, we use our gifts, and the body is built up, meaning we all come to understand the truth better and better, and not just in an abstract way like we can win Bible doctrine quizzes, but we experience those realities more and more deeply in our hearts, and the result is that there's less and less of me going this way and you going that way, and more of more of us moving in harmony together and experiencing God's grace as a result. Someone said you can think of church a little bit like a fourth grade band class. Uh, when we first get saved, we're all dropped off in this room filled with all these musical instruments and these other people, and we're supposed to form like a musical group, which is awesome, except none of us really knows how to play an instrument or how those instruments are supposed to sound. And so you can imagine if the teacher isn't there at the beginning, we just all picking up a, an instrument and trying, and it sounds terrible, and yet eventually the band teacher shows up, and he's not going around playing all the instruments, obviously, but what does he do? He's helping us learn how to use the instrument that we've been given, and slowly but surely the day comes when we're not just playing random notes any longer and making just loud noises, but we're actually united together and we're making beautiful music, which is what's supposed to be happening in the church. As we use the gifts Jesus gave us, Paul says, we're going to grow more and more united in the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's the second half of verse 13. And again, this is not just like more facts about the Son of God, because the word knowledge here 
is the kind of knowledge you have, not of a subject, but a person. And so he's saying, how do you grow in your relationship with Jesus? One big way is God uses the relationships we have with each other here at church. And as we grow in this relationship with Jesus like that, it, it, it's like we grow from being this crazy child who's just running around to acting like a mature person, which is Probably a better picture than that of the music, I think. Verse 13 again. Until we all again attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so it's like, how's this supposed to work, church? Well, it's like you've got this baby who's crying all the time and going to the bathroom everywhere. And he doesn't even know how to feed himself. And then if you're a parent, you know what this is like. It's like all of a sudden... It's 25 years later, and you've got this man standing there who's a gentleman, who's respectful, who's working hard, who knows how to treat other people. And you are thinking, how did this become this? And again, that's what we're asking about the church. How does the church go from being like a baby, spitting up on everyone, to being this mature man? That in Paul's words, verse 13, attains to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is huge and a little hard to understand as well, but at the very least has to do with putting Christ's glory on display. And so it's like Christ is the standard. He's the measuring stick. And Paul's hope is that we get to the point where our life together as a church reflects his beauty to this world. In other words, that when people look at this local church, they see a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus. And how does that happen? And Paul's answer is it happens as pastors and teachers help us learn to use our gifts and we actually use them. And this is so important that we learn to use our, our, our gifts and that we use them because, listen, we can say this positively or we can say it negatively. Positively, we want to be this beautiful representation of Jesus. And this is how. Or negatively, though, what happens if we don't? Verse 14 gives us a glimpse. So that we may no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And, and so it's kind of like when we're saved, it's kind of like we're, when we're born physically. We're not born adults, fortunately. All the mothers say amen. And we're not born adults spiritually. There's this process of us growing that's supposed to take place and where it's supposed to take is in the local church which is why it's so important that you're engaged in the life of the local church ministering to one another because of what happens when you don't because this is the means verse 14 that God designed for us to grow up and so again imagine you walk into a room and you see a child going crazy, hurting others and hurting themselves, you see that, how do you help? What's the first thing you usually ask? You see a child acting like that. It's not very complicated. You usually ask, where's this child's mother? And of course, you've got a wild child and there's a lot of things you could do. You could like write a governmental policy or something and you, know, you could uh, call a policeman, I suppose. But we know there's something that comes before any of that that's much more fundamental and that is you've got to find the child's mom. And spiritually, Paul's saying, it's like the church is supposed to be our mother. And how does that work specifically? It works as we look out for each other 
and use our gifts in each other's lives, God somehow is supernaturally at work enabling us as a local church to really be a good mom and using all those different relationships and gifts to nurture us, to protect us, and to help us grow. Again, quoting Paul, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And you might bold print that word grow. We're to grow because look, Paul assumes that kind of growth is, is necessary and possible. And that's why God has gifted the church the way he has. And it, it's so important for you to hear that because I know a lot of people out there at least are pretty pessimistic about the local church. As people look at Christians and the church, there's a kind of pessimism in America at least. And so these kinds of descriptions that we read about in the Bible about the importance of the church and the significance of the church and our role as a church, what God's wanting from us as a church, like the beginning of Ephesians 4, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called and how that plays out. Don't even really get them excited anymore because they don't think that's possible. And I get that. I, I do. And the result, though, is that some people leave the local church like, I'm done, and other people are like, you know what? This is just the way it is, the church. So I might as well just go make money um, and, and, and show up every once in a while. And, and, and part of that, I think, of course, is because this is a process. The local church is pretty amazing. It's a, this process of growing is continually happening with all kinds of different people over and over at different stages in the process. And we're sinners, and we sin, and we get messed up, and we go the wrong direction, and we don't always really even know who is a Christian. And sometimes people who are part of the church aren't believers, and we're involved in a spiritual war. And because, and because, and because, it's all kinds of reasons why it's difficult. And yet, even though all that's true, you can't ever grow discouraged or so discouraged that you stop believing it's possible for God to use the local church in absolutely stunning ways because Paul does believe it's possible, and you see it here. He says, rather, instead of being children, we are to grow up, and we are to grow up in every way into this more and more intimate relationship with Jesus. Why? What is our hope? Again, you have to go back to Jesus. It's because you know Jesus is committed to making this body grow. Paul says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. So yeah, obviously as we think about the church and what we can be as a church, we don't want to overestimate our importance. We're not needed by Jesus. We're not the first final solution to everyone's problems. We're going to fail. We're not going to be as amazing as we wish we could be. And yet at the same time, while we don't want to overestimate what we can do, we don't want to underestimate what Jesus can do. Because Jesus can make the church grow exactly the way he wants to, and he will. I'm convinced he will. As we each feel our responsibility to do what he's called us to do. Paul says he makes the body grow when each part is working properly. And that means if you're a believer, and you're part of this local church, uh, that, that means you. <laughs> We've got a 
a big dream for Cornerstone Bible Church. It's Ephesians 4.1. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And what's that mean? Ephesians 4.2. Relationships that reflect what God has done in us and for us. And we have hope that's possible because of Jesus. He's gifted us. He's graced us. He's gone to war and he's won. And he's given us what we need to need to be able to have these kinds of relationships and bring him glory but we need to be willing to obey Jesus to actually step up and fulfill the role he's given us and so if you're a Christian and you're a member of this church that means you have a gift to use (laughs) and look don't get all worried about like what is the gift I got to take some test or something just go to God Ask for help and and feel this responsibility and and get involved with relationships and don't make excuses. And and, and instead, when you get discouraged, look at yourself, look at Jesus. Did he win or did he not win? And ask for help from others when it's difficult. That's part of why you have leaders to equip you for the work of the ministry. And look to get equipped if you don't know what you're doing. But try. Try. Because look, God is for you. You have the spirit of God living within you. And so I know, of course, in the world it's it's different. Like before you do anything, you need like a long resume. And everybody's looking at you thinking he probably can't do it. I can't wait till he fails so I can get the job. And you're constantly having to prove yourself. And so maybe you don't like to step up and do something because... If you fail, then people are going to be like, this guy, what's the problem with this guy? But look, everything we want to do here as a church is impossible. Only God can do it. And so what's important is, first, are you saved? That's your, that's, that's your, your resume. <laughs> and then if you're saved, are you staying humble? Are you growing? And if you are, how can we help you? Because, yeah, you need to grow. And you need to learn, and you need to stop being a child, and you need to become an adult. That's real, and there's a process to that. But part of the process for all that is you getting involved in relationships and learning from others and serving others and receiving grace through those relationships and giving God's grace through those relationships. And if you need motivation, like, well, how important really is it that I do this, then go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 1 to 3, this is what God's done in making us a church. Ephesians chapter 4, this is how we live it out. But grace was given to each one of us. Let's pray. This is actually, Lord, we, pretty familiar truth, I think, to many people who have grown up going to church. And anytime there's a familiar truth, we're scared a little, God, because we can forget how amazing it is. Like, we may not be able to understand all the specifics of how it works out, but the big idea is so clear. Jesus, you defeated Satan and won this great battle on the cross and ascended into heaven and were exalted as king over the universe. And part of the reason why you did that was to gift us to be part of a a family, a local church where we can use our gifts so that we can all grow and become like 
you and be this beautiful picture to the world that they can find nowhere else of relationships that are just marked by supernatural love. And uh, God, we come to you and ask for help because so often we don't uh, step up or we get distracted or we take all this for granted. And uh, Lord, we pray like little children that you as our kind father would be patient with us and strengthen us and enable us to use our gifts in a way that can only be explained as the spirit is at work in that church. Not so that nothing about us, but so that Jesus, that you'll be honored and people will say, what, what a savior, what a savior. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.